Hello, and welcome to this episode of Criminal Mischief, the Art and Science of Crime Fiction. I'm D.P. Lyle, your host. Today I'm going to continue with uh, my series on forensic science for crime writers, in, in which I hope to help uh, you understand forensic science and be able to use it in your stories. This is be episode two of this series, and it's about evidence. So listen to this. Wherever he steps, whatever he touches, whatever he leaves, even unconsciously, will serve as a silent witness against him. Not only his fingerprints or his footprints, but his hair, the fibers from his clothes, the glass he breaks, the tool mark he leaves, the paint he scratches, the blood or semen he deposits or collects. All of these and more bear mute witness against him. This is evidence that does not forget. It is not confused by the excitement of the moment. It is not absent because human witnesses are. It is factual evidence. Physical evidence cannot be wrong. It cannot perjure itself. It cannot be wholly absent. Only human failure to find it, study and understand it, can diminish its value. Now this quote has been attributed to the great Professor Edmund Lacard and has been known as the Lacard Exchange Principle. But I've also seen uh, it attributed to other people talking about Professor Lacard. But regardless, this is the heart and soul of forensic science, that evidence is, is passed from one person to another, one person to a place, one person to an object. And it's this connection that is the heart and soul of forensic science and the crime lab and all of the criminal investigations that you write about, that you read about, and that you see on TV. So let's look a little bit at evidence and how we can use it in a story and what it really means, how it all gets put together, and what exactly is evidence. Evidence is really anything. I mean, it can, as you'll see, it can be uh, DNA and fingerprints and uh, psychological profiling and victimology and documents and uh, shoe prints and hair and fiber and ballistics and all of those things. I mean, obviously, it's a massive field and uh, there's many moving parts to it. But that's what makes great storytelling and that's how you get your red herrings in and that's how you get your evidence in and that's how your investigator um, wins his way through all of this evidence and all of these red herrings and all of this mishmash to come up with the answer at the end of your story. Now evidence, there's several ways of classifying it. One is direct or circumstantial. How many times have you heard that, you know, this is a circumstantial case? Well, I'm going to posit here that it better be a circumstantial case. Why is that? Because it's more reliable. Direct evidence means an eyewitness account or a confession. Now, eyewitness accounts are notoriously wrong. There's been famous experiments done uh, in psychology where there will be a classroom of students and someone will come into the room and fire a gun and run out the door. And then the professor will ask the students, who did that? What did you see? And the descriptions are all over the wall. They get the size and the weight, the, even the gender, sometimes the race. They get what they were wearing. They get everything wrong. How many gunshots were fired? It is amazing how eyewitnesses are wrong. 
And it's because you bring your own beliefs and prejudices and, and abilities and, and your, your, your ability to see things and remember things and how your mind fills in the blanks. And so you end up with a mishmash of stories. That's human nature, and there's nothing you can do about it. So eyewitness accounts are often notoriously wrong. Now, you can use this. Someone can say, well, absolutely, that's who I saw. Well, a lot of cases have come down and, and either correctly or erroneously uh, tried and convicted on eyewitness accounts that, that later proved to be false. Same way with confessions. People will confess for a lot of reasons. Maybe it's a parent trying to protect protect a child or a spouse trying to protect the, the other spouse. Maybe people have reasons for why they would take the blame for something. And then sometimes people just confess. They confess to the craziest things for the craziest reasons. So direct evidence is fraught with problems. Not that you wouldn't like it, but, you know, it, it, it does have its flaws. It was probably more accurate a long time ago where everybody knew each other because they lived in small towns. Now everybody's more anonymous, and so you're, you're dealing with not who you know and what you know, but with strangers that you see, and you try to remember what you saw. Now, evidence can also be physical or biological. You know, physical evidence are things like fingerprints and shoe and tire impressions, tool marks, paint, glass, fibers, Drugs, firearms, bullets, shell casings, documents, explosives, petrochemical products. All of those things are physical evidence. Biological evidence would be things like the body itself, in the case of a murder, blood, saliva, semen, hair, and, and botanicals, uh, trees and, and shrubs and seeds and pollens and all of that stuff. So what are the uses of evidence? How does evidence... Uh, come to not only the police but to you in your story and your um, and your uh, protagonist trying to solve the crime you've probably heard the term corpus delecti and that basically means the body are the essential facts of the crime and the evidence at the crime scene will determine what type of crime was committed was this a robbery was this a sexual assault was this a murder um, the evidence found around the crime scene will determine what type of crime took place. They're not always that evidence. Sometimes something looks like something, and it's really not. It may look like a home invasion murder when it is actually a domestic problem. Again, this is where good storytelling and a good investigator comes in. Evidence also can point to the modus operandi or the MO. How many times have you heard that term? Motive means an opportunity. Um, the, mod the, the modus operandi or MO are the steps and the methods that the perpetrator actually uses to commit the crime. It is what gymnastics do they go to? What kinds of things do they do? And in repetitive crimes like 7-Eleven uh, robberies or drive-by shootings or uh, home, home invasions or, or breaking and entering or, or you name the crime, when they become repetitive, the people committing the, the crime, the person or persons, often follow a similar pattern. In other words, do they pry open a glass slider at the back of a house? Do they choose a house in a rural area? Do they enter through a second story window? 
What kinds of things are they looking for? Credit cards and money or jewelry? Are they there to commit a physical crime or are they there to rob? All of these things would dictate the M.O. Did they drive there or walk there? Did they use tools to pry open a window? And if so, what type of tool? All of these things speak to the M.O. of the person. How did they commit the crime? And your investigator can see similarities, maybe from a crime from years ago, something that they remembers and says, oh, wait a minute, I've seen this before. Good storytelling, good plotting, and in real life, really happens. Evidence can be used to link, and we'll talk about this more. In other words, it can, it can link a suspect or a place or other pieces of evidence to the crime scene. These can be footprints and fingerprints and DNA, and all of this stuff will link someone to that crime scene. It can use for verification. Is a witness or a suspect telling the truth or are they lying? Are they trying to cover something? Are they mistaken? What is going on here? Someone may say um, that, that they heard a truck or they heard a motorcycle at that time at 2 o'clock in the morning and that was unusual for their neighborhood. Uh, and you find out that the suspect says, well, I don't own a motorcycle. Well, actually, the suspect does own a motorcycle. So now you've kind of verified that this person is probably lying. Let's say someone says, I was nowhere in the neighborhood, but their phone or their car GPS says otherwise, or the camera on the security camera on the house across the street picks them up at the scene of the crime. So it can verify their alibi. No, I was nowhere near there. I was somewhere else. Well, no, the evidence says otherwise. It can also help identify a suspect, of course. DNA and fingerprints go without saying. So can video. So can voice prints. Um, so can uh, shoe prints if the shoes are then found. Tire tracks, if the, if the correct car is found and the tires haven't been worn too much, then those can be compared and say, okay, this is the tire. They can also, evidence can also be used to reconstruct a crime scene. And so the investigators can look at what evidence is there, what, what, do, they, what do they have that, um, uh, that tells them how this went down. What was the approach? What was the departure point? What was done inside the house? What, where was the position of the victim, standing, sitting, lying in bed? Where was the perpetrator most likely standing when they beat the person with a baseball bat or shot them with a gun? And blood spatter evidence can often tell that. So they will reconstruct the crime scene and evidence will help do this. Now, evidence also leads to other investigative uh, leads. In other words, as your investigator gathers more and more evidence, he may pivot to look at someone else. He may decide that the person he thought did it did not do it because evidence now indicates that this person was in another county or another state or that this person has a ironclad alibi uh, even if they're next door. Um, things then start changing and so they pivot where they're looking who are they looking for and whether this suspect is a suspect or this suspect is just merely a witness or an innocent bystander. 
One of the important things in storytelling, I, I think, is the midpoint of a story. It's about 50% the way through. And you know, all know that, that when your protagonist is trying to solve a problem, whatever it is, if it's to solve a murder or get a date for the prom, it doesn't matter what kind of story you're telling. But they use all of their normal activities, what they do repetitively, how they approach a problem. Maybe they'll just ignore it for a while, or maybe they'll try to manipulate it, or maybe they'll try to deny it, or maybe they'll try whatever because they're all passive things. And then something happens around the midpoint of the story that now they have to take a more active interest if they're going to solve this problem whatever it is. And often a single piece of evidence will do that. An example, let's say that, that a, a woman is, uh, her husband, she's highly stressed because her husband is a suspect in the murder of the next door neighbor, the woman that lives next door. She has no idea they've been having an affair and that the husband actually did it. But, um, She's very stressed by this because he's become a suspect and the police are coming around and all that. So the police bring her in or interrogating her, you know, for like the third time. And finally they say, well, you know, the, the killer we think left a, had, had left a note earlier that this has been an ongoing thing. And maybe they left a Valentine's card, maybe something. And they wanted to know if she recognized it. And so they show her the card and she flips it open and immediately recognizes her husband's handwriting. Well, this is going to pivot her story in a whole different direction. Instead of now being defensive and, and, and saying, no, this can't happen. It'll go away. I don't have to worry about it. Now it's like I'm living with a murderer. I got to help the police. And now she becomes more active. So if we look at the functions of evidence and how this can all happen, we, we look at, uh, one of its main functions is identification and comparison. Now, identification means that uh, what is this item? What is this substance? What is this thing? What have we found here? Is this white powder? Is it heroin or methamphetamine? Or is it just sugar, you know, or Splenda or whatever? Uh, who manufactured the shoe that, is, that left the print at the crime scene? You know, in the O.J. cases, the, those ugly-ass Bruno Mali shoes. You know, is it a, a New Balance or Adidas uh, running shoe? Who manufactured it? What size is it? Is it an unusual size and, 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 and configuration? Is it a type of shoe that's not even sold in that area? All of these things you can use to plot your story and twist it. Okay? Is this brown carpet on the stain blood? or chocolate sauce, or something else? Are there chemical residues at the site of a suspicious fire? All of these things are identification. You're identifying what's at the crime scene. What actually is it? And then by comparison, you compare it to see if it's known against another, if you have this as a crime scene sample, and now you collect a sample from a suspect or somewhere else, do they share a common origin? Did they come from the same place? Now, obviously with fingerprints and, and, and blood and DNA, 
you're comparing them against a suspect. And that's why when they bring suspects in, they will do a swab of their mouth and get DNA because the DNA was left at the scene by the perpetrator. And they are going to compare those two and see if they match. And that's very important. Um, we talked about circumstantial evidence. So let's say this person's fingerprints are found at a crime scene. Well, if they have an innocent reason for being there, they could have left the, the fingerprints at any time. It doesn't necessarily mean it was left there at the, at the scene of the crime. For example, let's say a woman is murdered down the street and there's a teenage boy a few doors down who has issues. He's been troubled, but he's also not a bad kid at other times. And maybe this woman is found murdered and they're thinking is did this kid do this he was in the area he was in the neighborhood we've seen him we know he was there could he have done this because you know he's got a record so they ask him have you do you know mrs jones of course i do have you ever been in her house of course i have i bring her groceries all the time you know she's got a bad leg and she doesn't walk to the store very well so i go down and pick up her groceries and so that's why his fingerprints might be on the uh, refrigerator door handle on her front door on a tabletop or whatever in other words there's an an, an explanation okay uh but what if he says, no, I don't know her. I've never been in her house. Well, then how are you going to explain the fingerprints are there? And the comparison of his fingerprints to those at the crime scene are what links him to it. So we go back to linkage. So that's where comparison comes in. You compare a crime scene thing. It's interesting. You know, they can even tell sometimes a batch of, of methamphetamine, whether if it matches this batch of methamphetamine. So the perpetrator's caught with methamphetamine and there's some left at the scene. It, did these come from the same uh, batch? In petrochemicals, if they use it to start a fire and they find a, a mostly empty can of gasoline at the perpetrator's or the suspect's home, and then they take what's left there at the crime scene, some of the unburned uh, gas that was sloshed around, and then they compare it with this, they can do a chemical analysis on it and determine the manufacturer and often the, the batch that 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 particular thing was, was uh, that, that particular, particular gallon of gasoline came from. So now they know, okay, it was, a, it was this type of service station. How many are in the neighborhood? There they are. They go check the surveillance video, and lo and behold, here is the guy filling up a gas can at the, at the service station when he denied that anything like that could have happened. Another very, very, very important thing, and you can, you can use this, um, is class versus individual characteristics. And this is pretty easy to understand, really. Class means that it is um, unique to a particular class, but not a particular object. And individual means it is that particular object. I talked about uh, car tires earlier. So let's say tire tracks are found at the scene. And let's say very quickly they identify a suspect and he's got tires of the right size and the right tread pattern. Okay. That would be class evidence that, okay, these are Dunlap tires of a certain size. And that's consistent with what was found at the crime scene. But is this actually them? 
So now they take those tires and they examine the tread, roll it on the paper or, or do digital uh, photography of it, and they compare it with that. And now they find that there's individualizing characteristics. There are nicks and cuts and wear patterns that is different for every tire. And so they find, uh, okay, this is not only a class of tire, a type of tire. This is the tire that left that tire track at that crime scene. And that's the difference between class and individual characteristics. Another example is there's been a gunshot. and The person's been shot with a 38 caliber revolver. Okay. So they find that the suspect has a 38 caliber revolver. So what they have is that there is class evidence that this gun could be connected. So what do they do? They test fire the gun. They get the actual uh, test fired bullet and compare it with the one removed from the, from the deceased person. And voila, it either matches or it doesn't. But if it does, now that's individualizing characteristics. Another example might be a paint chip that is found at the scene of a hit and run. Child on his bicycles hit by a drunk driver. Drunk driver leaves. Happens all the time. And now they identify this this paint chip, and they find out that it's midnight blue paint from Chevrolet from you know 2001 to 2008. Okay, so that's the that's the years that that paint was used, and they identify it chemically, and now they know this came from a at least the paint that Chevrolet used in those years. Okay, fine. So now they go to the a suspect and they find out that he has a uh, car that is that color of those of those years. So that means that the class evidence suggests that this car is in the suspect pool, as it were. But let's say they examine the car and find that the chip there's a little chip off the right front fender. And the chip found in the clothing of the person or on the road beside the person absolutely like a jigsaw puzzle matches that chip. So now they can say this chip of blue paint not only came from a Chevrolet painted midnight blue of those years manufacturer, class evidence, that now it fits like a jigsaw puzzle. Now this chip has become individual evidence, individualizing. And interesting that these are called fracture patterns, whether it's on glass or broken items or, or, uh, or paint chips, things that are chipped or torn, even torn documents. Uh, these are called fracture patterns. And if you can find a piece that fits just like that, that's as good as DNA. And, and a fingerprint because no two things fracture or tear or, 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 or are damaged in the same way. So you've gone from class evidence, the type of paint or the type of bullet, to individual evidence that is the paint chip that came from this car or the bullet that came from this gun. Now, evidence can also be reconstructive and associative. Reconstructive, I talked about earlier, reconstructing the crime scene. When, the, when your investigator arrives, they're going to walk through the scene and look around, and they're going to get a feel for what happened here. It's called a walkthrough. And they will, before, any, before any, they get too deep in the weeds, they want an overview of what happened here. So let's say the body is laying in the living room floor. And what they see is a slider from the kitchen has been pried open. And they see 
mud or dirt or whatever footprints coming in there. And then they see the person is murdered, and then they see bloody footprints, this is pretty sophomoric, going out the back door, another door. So now they know the point of entry and the point of exit. So when they start looking for evidence, they will not only look in and around the body and, and expand their search from there, but they will also backtrack to where did this person come from to enter this way and where did this person go if they left that way. Often evidence is discarded on the way by accident or, or when you're exiting the scene because people want to get rid of stuff. They throw a mask and they throw gloves and they throw guns and they throw knives and they think that, you know, we're a hundred yards away. They'll never find it. Well, if they follow the entry and exit, then they've reconstructed the crime scene. This is how it happened. Let's say the person is, is dead. Are they, were they standing when they were shot? Were they on their hand or they're on their knees, more like an execution? Were they lying in bed? The crime scene will tell you all that and you can reconstruct what happened. Was the person shot in the head or shot in the back of the head? Shot in the front of the head or the back of the head? In other words, was the victim facing the shooter or, or turning away from the shooter? These will help reconstruct and they will tell each one of those, I think you can see, will tell a different story as to what went down here. Now, associative evidence we talked about. This is the Lacard principle. Things that associate the person, you know, whether if they're tire prints, tire tracks, or, or shoe prints, or fingerprints, or DNA, they associate the person with the scene. But they can also be red herrings, and this is where you can really introduce these into your story. What looks like strong evidence is not. I remember many years ago, I was on the now defunct Court TV, a show I still miss, uh, twice. Once was remotely, I think they took us up to a studio in L.A., and then the other one I was in the studio um, uh, in New York. Um, one was about the Michael Jackson case, and the other was about the Scott Peterson case. And you may remember Scott Peterson murdered his wife, Lacey, and you know, he bought a boat and made anch made anchors and dumped her in the San Francisco Bay, thinking that was the end of it. And then, of course, as bodies do, she she and uh, her unborn baby Connor popped up three months later on the shores. You know, a few hundred yards from where Scott said he was fishing. So, duh, he pretty much put himself, you know, there. And uh, so, one of the questions that they asked was, "What about DNA?" And you know, the answer is, "What about it?" You know. So, if they found Lacey's blood on Scott's blue jeans in their home, what does that mean? Again, it's circumstantial. All it means is Lacey's blood got on Scott's pants. They lived together. Anything could happen. She could have cut a finger, you know, a week earlier. She could have had a bloody nose. Anything could have happened. It does not necessarily mean that it was related to a murder. So sometimes that type of evidence is a red herring. It doesn't really tell you the story. Now, Scott was guilty as hell for a lot of other reasons, but DNA was not part of it. Two other things about crime scenes. There's primaries and secondary crime scenes. The primary scene is where it actually happened, where the killing, say, a murder actually happened. Secondary scenes are everything else that might relate to the crime after that.
Okay. In the case of a murder and the body is taken five miles away and dumped in a, in a ditch and the body is found there, that becomes a secondary crime scene. And often it's the secondary crime scene that is found first. So someone sees the body laying in a ditch, calls the police, and now they got this person. So what are they going to do? They're going to identify that person, find out who they are, hopefully, and then they're going to backtrack and say, well, where does this person live? And then they're going to go look at that place as a potential primary crime scene. So then what if they find blood in the bathroom or they find blood on a towel or they find, you know, blood droplets in the garage floor or wherever. And now they may be able to reconstruct that and say, this is the primary scene. The other one is the secondary scene. But sometimes finding the primary scene is impossible. Serial killers often dump bodies in remote places. And when they're found, how do you know where the murder took place? It, it, did it take take place there or elsewhere? But let's say you got a victim that's found like that and there's blood all around, you know, blood spatter and bleeding and all this. You can say, oh, okay, the person was murdered here. That makes this more or less the primary crime scene. But if it's not and the scene is pristine, but you can tell the person was badly beaten or shot or stabbed or whatever and would have lost a lot of blood, but there's no blood there, you can say, no, this is a secondary crime scene and the body was dumped here and we need to find out where this crime took place because that's critical. Knowing where it took place, now you know what suspects had access to that area, were in that area, had access to the person could have possibly have been the perpetrator of this crime. So finding that primary crime scene for your detective is important. And lastly, let's talk about staged crime scenes. Often people will do something and they will stage the scene to make it look like something else. Now you've seen this many, many, many times. They will say a homicide and try to make it look like a suicide. You know, whether if it's a blow to the back of the head and then they put the, put the wife in the bathtub and fill it up with water, you know, and say she slipped and fell and hit her head and drowned and that kind of thing. Well, that's all well and good. And that does happen, but maybe, maybe, the blow to the head that knocked her unconscious could not have occurred from falling against a bathtub. Or maybe there are bruises on the arms where she was held underwater. Uh, arms or shoulders are grabbed and held underwater and, and drowned that way after being struck. So all of these things will make a staged crime scene not so, not so workable. <laughs> no, it didn't happen the way you said it did. Uh, another classic example is that someone will break and enter a home and, and murder somebody and, and steal stuff, and, you know, and rummage through the house and all this. And so it looked like a breaking and entering, entering robbery that either the person surprised them or was overpowered by them from the get-go and the person killed the person in order to... Um, to commit the robbery. But very often, a, a spouse will kill a spouse in the house. They will stage it to look like a breaking and entering and robbery. They may knock a window out. Uh, hopefully, they're smart enough to go outside and knock the window out and not knock it out from inside out because the glass would be in a different place. But, you know, criminals are stupid, so anything is possible. Um, and then they will go rummage around the house and turn stuff over. Well, people who are in a house looking for money and drugs and 
uh, whatever they can find, uh, jewelry, you know, wh- whatever they can find, they're going to open drawers and rummage through them, but they're not going to dump everything all over the floor because it makes it messy, and they're trying to get in and get out in a hurry, and they don't want to step over all this stuff and get tangled in it, and plus, you know, you got 12 drawers to go through. You're going to end up dumping all of them on the floor. No, they don't do that. People People just don't do that. They will rummage through the drawer, but they will not pull it out and dump it on the floor. Not usually. So people kind of overstage crime scenes all the time. And so it ends up that the, the investigators will come back in and do their crime scene reconstruction. And they will look at the evidence that is in front of them and say, no, 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 no. This did not go down this way. Someone's trying to make it look like this, but it's not. And a classic example that we'll talk about in the later thing are gunshot wounds. So say someone shot in the head and dead and the gun's laying there and they say, okay, this person uh, committed suicide. Well, maybe. What if the angle is in such a way that the, um, that the person couldn't have held the gun in that way? They say it's high and back of the head. Try to do that. Try to put your hand up like a gun and put it high up behind your head. You, It's not a comfortable position. If someone's committing suicide, would not do that. People committing suicide shoot themselves in the side of the head or in the mouth, something like that. They don't do it from high and from behind because it's awkward and stupid. So... (laughs) Plus, you can do the gunshot residue and look at the uh, yeah, you can look at the, uh, the the pattern of the of the of the entry wound, what it looks like, and again, that's that we're not going to get into that right here. And you can estimate the muzzle distance, and it may be if the muzzle's five feet away, three or more feet away, the person couldn't have pulled the trigger themselves. One classic case was the Kurt Cobain murder versus suicide something that's still up in the air and it's still argued about you know was he too hammered on heroin to have killed himself or because he used heroin all the time the level of heroin found in him would have been nothing for him you know it might have killed the average person but not kirk because he was a heroin user but he was laying on the floor in a little in in a in an area above the garage a room above the garage that they had there in seattle he and courtney and she was out of town. She was she was out of state. But he was laying on his back with a shotgun laying. And a lot was made of the shotgun being upside down. In other words, with a trigger toward the ceiling. And people said, well, that's odd. No, it's not odd. If you're going to lay down on the floor and put a shotgun under your chin, it would be awkward to have it the other way. It would be easier to lay it upside down, if you will, and then just use your thumb to pull the trigger. All well and good. I don't have a problem with that. That makes sense to me. But... The ejected shell from the shotgun was laying several feet to the left when the ejection port would have been on the right side of the shotgun, which means that the ejection the, the, the shot that was ejected in this in this automatic rifle, automatic shotgun, should have been to the right. So now you reconstruct the crime scene. Was it staged? Did someone kill him? We don't know, and we may never know. But I think you see the incredible storytelling opportunities in that scenario. So bottom line, evidence is the heart and soul of forensic science, and it's also the heart and soul of criminal investigation and, of course, the crime lab. And I think you can see that that evidence can be looked at in a lot of different ways, and hopefully some of this stuff will spark some thoughts and some plot points and some interesting ideas for your stories 
and you can use these to reconstruct or construct your own story. So this has been the second episode in, in, in what I'm calling uh, Forensic Science for Writers, um, Forensic Science for Crime Writers, and this one is evidence. The first one was on the coroner, and others will come down the road. So until next time, this is D.P. Lyle bidding you farewell. And remember, this is a copyrighted uh, podcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Until next time.